Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Well, now that we've done probably the most Canadian thing ever, we talked about rain and weather and everything like that. Um, we can uh, we can dive into our our hearts drawn this morning. Um, it's great to be with you again as we continue to uh, work our way through Joshua. Um, today we're going to be looking at chapters six and seven. Uh, as we as we continue on, and if you remember, at this point, this is where um, Israel is going through uh, and conquering the nation of uh, or the nations that were in the promised land that Israel was to possess, and they've just finished um, taking out um, Jericho, their first uh, their first battle. So we're going to, uh, oh, no, no, we're, that's what we're going to talk about. I'm getting ahead of myself. I've been reading the next, I'm going through the next one, so I'm getting mixed up. So we're going to start off with chapter six, and we'll dive into it. So let's just pray before we do so. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its richness. And um, even when it's history, and it's just, it's telling us what you did, um, and what your people did, there's still so much in that uh, that um, speaks to your character, which then speaks to who you are for us today. And so we just pray that your word will come alive for us and speak uh, at a depth that allows us to transform who we are into your image. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. I'm just going to make sure my computer is on do not disturb there. Sorry about that. All right, so let's dive in to uh, our chapter. So chapter six, and chapter six begins the process of God giving Israel the land through conquest. There would be numerous battles that would need to take place. And God would secure victory as Israel follows his commands. And Jericho was going to be the start of that. Now Jericho uh, was afraid, but they're also prepared. They had... Uh, Hold up in the city. Nobody was allowed in or out. They had um, made themselves a little fortress because of their fear of Israel and their God. But Josh, but God tells Joshua that he needs to see this fear um, it, and uh, they're locking away as a sign of victory, uh, that it's secure, not as something of like, oh man, now we have this big, huge siege of this big city with its big walls and, you know, it's going to be tough but to see it as rather a sign of victory. Jericho's king and their mighty men of valor are not so mighty anymore. And, and it says specifically that the king and the mighty men of valor are, uh, you know, locked away. So they're not so mighty if they're all locked away inside and rather than coming out to meet this ragtag uh, nation that had just crossed the river. Men's, men they had once feared when the 
first time they had gone through, the 10 spies looked at the people in the land and thought they were like giants. And now they've melted before them. Verse uh, 3 to 14, then, God commands Joshua how the city was to be won. They were to have seven priests blowing trumpets in front of the ark, which which would be God's presence. And that would be in the middle of the army. There'd be some in front and some behind as they silently marched. Nobody was to make a no- noise. There's no talking. There's no talking about the weather as they go- went around the city. And we were like, wow, man, the weather in the promised land looks pretty good. Nothing like that. They were to be silent as they marched. The only thing to be heard was just the trumpets, um, the trumpets uh, blaring. Uh, and they're supposed to do that for seven days. And on the seventh day, they had to march around seven times. And at that trumpet blast, everyone was to shout and yell. And at that moment, God declared that the city walls would fall in on themselves. And so Joshua commands that. And it so begins the siege. And so we're going to just read the account from there on what happens. Verses 15 to 21. On the seventh day, they rose at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they had marched around the city seven times. And at that seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Last, when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing devoted. uh, for destruction and bring trouble upon it but all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the lord they shall go into the treasury of the lord and so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted a great shout the wall fell down flat So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him. And if you think of a city all around, they've got a concentric ring around it, and they all go in on the city. Then, uh, where are we? Uh, Every man straight before him and captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Now, when we read that, that's an, it's an amazing passage of God supernaturally giving them victory. He knocks down the wall. He does the majority of the work because you'd think most of the soldiers would be at the wall. They would be on the wall to defend the city. He does that. They only need to go in and fully do, to vote to destruction, the survivors of this cataclysmic event. And this is one of the most challenging verses or sections of the Bible that we'll read because it said, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Everything needed to die. 
why did God ask them to annihilate an entire people group? Not just soldiers, but senior citizens, women, children. Now, in our modern sensitivities and cultural attachments, we'll read this and see this almost like an ethnic cleansing or a genocide of a people's group, a people group. And some would accuse Israel of doing so just for land. Not so different than some would accuse uh, European settlers of forcing their way onto the First Nations land here. And is that true? Is that what God was doing in that part? Is that what we read when we see go in and take them all out? Every single last one of them needs to die. Well, a lazy reading of scripture may suggest that. And by lazy, I just mean we, we only focus on the one thing we're reading and we take, we take that and we assume that's who God is. We don't take into the account the totality of scripture, who God is before and after, and what God has sent before or after. So a lazy reading of scripture would suggest that, or one cherry picks what they're reading and makes it a definitive statement about it. Uh, one where we don't remember what we've already read and what we already know. Because we know from Genesis chapter 15 that there was a waiting period that Israel would need to go through before entering the land. Abraham knew that his descendants would be enslaved before inhabiting the land. God says to him, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so what does that mean? God wouldn't dispossess a people undeservedly out of favoritism. Okay, God is not going to kick one nation out out of favoritism for another. Well, we saw in Deuteronomy uh, 7, verses 1 to 6, God had committed them for destruction. He wanted Israel to have nothing to do with their evil ways so that they wouldn't be corrupted and see the same fate. They were to be a holy people set apart for the Lord. Like we said the other day, they are his treasured possession. Not because they were special in and of themselves, but because God choosing them and their obedience would make them holy. So how bad were the Amorites and other nations that Israel was to totally uh, devote to destruction? What was going on with them that was so bad that was God was like, like you need to wipe them totally out. Solomon uh, wrote a book that we don't include in our Bible, but we can read it as a book of antiquity, a book of history, and a book of his sayings. Um, he said this about the people of Israel, uh, that, about the land that they possessed in his book. Um, he said this, he said, those who dwelt uh, of old in thy holy land did, and you got to forgive me, it's, it's read in uh, more of a King James version, um, an old King James version, because they don't, they don't keep translating these types of books into newer versions, into a message version or something like that. But he says this. Those who dwelt of old in thy holy land, thou didst hate for their detestable practices, their works of sorcery and of unholy rites, their merciless slaughter of children, and their sacrificial feasting on human flesh and blood. These initiates from the, mid from the midst of a heathen cult, these parents who murder helpless lives, 
thou didst will to destroy by the hands of our fathers, that the land most precious of all to thee might receive a worthy colony of the servants of God. But even these thou didst spare, since they were but men, and did send wasps as forerunners of thy army to destroy them little by little. Though thou were not able to give the unholy into the hands of righteous in battle, or to destroy them at one blow by dread um, wild beast or by stern word, but judging them little by little, thou gavest them a chance to repent. Though thou wast unaware that, though thou was not unaware that their orig their origin was evil and their wickedness inborn, and in that their way of thinking would never change, for they were an accursed race from the beginning, and it was through fear uh, of no one that thou didst leave them unpunished for their sins. Now I know that's a a big a big passage, but this is what he was saying, and this is what Solomon was saying in in his book. He said Solomon was implying that God was graceful in his approach to these nations and their ways, that he had actually given opportunity for them to repent over the years and over the generations, but their hearts were so hard towards God and their destruction then would be inevitable. Sorcery, child sacrifice were among the things that God could no longer stand. And yet before Israel were to look down their nose uh, on these nations, God warns them that for Israel to take possession of anything, and if they were to take any of the plunder of this city from this first battle, it would cause Israel to be in the same devoted place of destruction. Now we can read in the New Testament that Jesus, Jesus reaffirms all of humanity's condition. In John 8, 24, it says, you are from below, I and from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless we believe that he is the son of God, here for our salvation, we meet the same fate as the Amorites, dying in our own sin. And if we feel that the overarching destruction of God is too much, then we can re be reminded that God knows how to save righteous people. God knows how to save those that he sees as innocent or as deemed, deemed worthy of, of being saved. In 2 Peter 2, uh, 4 to 10, God speaks, uh, it speaks of God's ability to do so it says he cast down angels when they sinned but he rescues noah he burned sodom and gomorrah but he rescues lot and it says then the lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment especially those uh, who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority god knows how to keep the righteous safe while punishing the wicked. And so we know that we can trust him in this. We do not need to be afraid that God doesn't know how to separate those who are righteous and just from those who are not. We can trust that he is not an indiscriminate ethnic cleanser. We can trust that his holy yet merciful hand um, is just. Even as we see Rahab uh, acknowledging God and looking to be saved, 
uh, despite her lifestyle of sin. It isn't sinlessness, rather the calling on God for salvation that is distinct. The embracing of godliness that brings salvation. While this may have been and this, this may this may have been a cultural norm at the time. We can read there's a there's a, a it's called the, the the Moab stone and on it that they wrote their their history and some of the kings wrote about how they would do the exact same thing when they went in uh, and fought other armies. How they would go in and they would devote to destruction uh, the everybody everything alive in that nation as a sacrifice to their God. We can see that may have been a cultural norm, totally destroying one's enemy. But we can see in the case of Israel, it wasn't just as a sacrifice to their God. It was God's judgment rather than Israel's geographic claim that was at the center or Israel's, Israel's conquest that, that, is, that was at the center. It was judgment on a people that God could no longer stand. Israel would have different terms for war against nations that were outside of the promised land. This was a specific call from God to, to cleanse the, the land of people who has, whose sin was too great for God to handle. After this, Israel would have new rules for how to fight uh, nations around them, how to offer peace before fighting, how to um, be able to you know, do things in a way that was a just and offered a, a way out of conflict. So this was a specific moment to um, be a part of God's judgment on these people. The chapter ends with the spies who dealt with Rahab, finding her and her family with their house that was built into the wall, miraculously still standing. They were placed outside of the camp of Israel, and that was most likely for purity re reasons, for, for cleansing them, as, uh, et cetera, um, as their grafting into Israel would be undoubtedly taking some time. Joshua then curses the city of Jericho and what remains of it. And whoever, whoever, whoever tries to rebuild that evil city would pay a price that was very dear. In 1 Kings 16.34, we see that curse fulfilled when Hale tries to re rebuild that city and it costs him his firstborn to build the walls and his uh, last son to put the gates on it. And so there we have um, chapter six, which leads us into chapter seven, which can be just as crazy as watching what happened in chapter six. And see now we have the hindsight of uh, here to like slap our forehead shake our head and and wonder what was Achan thinking Moses gives this big huge speech right before the walls fall he's saying hey it's about to happen but when we go in none of the gold none of the silver none of the bronze none of the iron is for you that goes to God and everything else we devote to for destruction he hears that and then goes in and he steals some for himself. He sees some gold, he sees some silver, and he takes it and he hides it under his tent. No one knows this, but he does so. And so now they go on and they plan their attack on the next city. Joshua sends spies just like he did to, um, to or go around Jericho. He sends spies and they report that uh, the city of Ai is weak. 
and this should be easily defeated. It's defenses, it's, it's the amount of soldiers they have shouldn't be a problem, especially as everybody is melting around Israel. And so they only send a few thousand soldiers. They're like, don't send everybody. It's, it, it'd be too much to get everybody all up, move over there to go and attack them. We can just send a few thousand soldiers and do this. And they go and attack them. But this time they quickly realize that things are not going the same. There's no miraculous victory ensured by God. Instead, they are quickly being cut down. Now, it mentions 36 people, and we may not think, oh, 36, that, that would be common in warfare or whatever, but the it was the way that they were just being defeated and the way that how easily those first 36 fell that they quickly turned because they this was not the same as what just happened in Jericho. And so they flee. And Joshua and the leaders, they're, they're beside themselves and they fall on their faces and they put dust on their head and they call out to God and they're like, God, why have you done this to us? Why did you bring us into the land? You had us take out one city, but now everybody else is going to see that we went to this small little city to take it out and they easily beat us. They're going to be full of courage. They're going to fight back. And it's going to be so much trouble. We could have just stayed on the other side of the Jordan. We could have just lived there and everything would be fine. Why did you do this to us, God? You know, what? where did strong and courageous Joshua go? Where did that Joshua who is told to be strong, be courageous, you know, that God's with you everywhere you go. Where did that guy go? But isn't that somehow uh, often how we come to God? We're going through something. We're facing some opposition that we thought we'd easily be able to handle. And then we're not able to handle it as easily as we thought. And we cry out to God, why are you doing this to me? I thought this was supposed to be easy. I thought we had this victory all wrapped up. And we ask what's wrong with God, why he's doing this to us. And then we get that aha moment when God asks us why we're blaming him. When we're tripping over our own feet. We've gotten off track. We've become entangled with things that were devoted to destruction, things that pull us from worship from our God rather than push us to it. And yet we call it to God, why are you making me go through this? And the question maybe we can ask ourselves here is, is there something you are thinking is God's fault that is something of your own making? Is there something that you potentially are blaming on God that is really something of your own making, where you've wandered away from what God's asked you to do, asked you to be, how he's asked you to live, that is causing you more strife in your life than is needed. And yet you still go to God and say, God, why am I going through this? As if God has some hand in it. Now, God and Joshua then consecrate all the people to figure out what is going on. God knows, but God's going to lead Joshua to, to figure out the answer. And then for Joshua to figure out who the culprit was that has endangered the whole nation, because now the whole nation is devoted to destruction because Achan has taken that gold and that silver. We are warned here that the conduct of one can affect the whole community. One person is now seeing the whole nation devoted to destruction. God's willingness to abide in them is gone because there's sin in the camp. God's holiness and sin 
cannot both reside in men's hearts. When God, when Achan is discovered as the offender, then uh, they collect the gold and silver that he stole. They collect all his belongings and his family. And because of his sin, the entire family and property is devoted to destruction, just as the city of Jericho was. They are stoned and burned and then piled. Uh, the stones are piled over top of them in a massive pile. This turns away the burning anger of the Lord. We may feel like we are living in an era of grace and, you know, oops, I'm sorry, repentance. But we would do well to remember that God is the same uh, in his righteous anger towards Israel. Uh, he is the same. Let me see this right. God is the same uh, in the day of his righteous anger towards Israel uh, as he is today and will be tomorrow. That doesn't change about God. It was abated by Achan's death. And while we may think that we're living in this period of grace, he is still the same. He doesn't change. We may ask the question, how does this compare to Ananias and Sapphira? Who did a very similar thing. Stole uh, in the community uh, from what they devoted to God. They said they devoted everything to God, and yet they kept some to this, for themselves. What was supposed to be devoted to, for God ended up in their own tent. So a question I wonder, maybe it's just for me rather than all of us, but is this, how significant is this for us in the church today? How does our individual holiness affect the local body of Christ we worship with? Just how we live out our faith, the sin that we may allow in our lives affect our community. And what community responsibility do we have to making sure we continually follow God? All right. Second Peter 2, where I made that reference um, to God knowing how to save um, the righteous. Peter spoke those words to an early church audience. Um, in how God would deal with false teachers and prophets, ones who distort, distort and deceive and, and betray the gospel given to them. Surely we should see, we would, we, sh blah, I can talk. Surely we should be both innocent as doves and cunning as wolves as we wisely discern what is from God and what is the manifestation of evil disguised in spirituality. We do not loot cities like in Israel day but we do take ground in the kingdom of God. And as we do, we should be wary of what, um, of what in this current culture can lure and entice us into desiring uh, it over God and his purposes in our lives, just like it did for Achan. I think that's a, that was a huge thing for me as I read through this, is that we often can get caught doing that. And I think we can see it in a lot of uh, false teachers that we'll, we'll see uh, in our time, in our age, and how when they devote themselves to things of destruction rather than to things of God, you see their lives completely go off the rails. And we may look at that and think that's only for people like those leaders. But I think the same thing can apply to all of our lives is when we devote ourselves to things of destruction in the world around us that it has an effect on us that, that we, um, 
that we need to pay attention to. We are living in a new covenant as far as how God's grace and mercy um, uh, affect us and how we can call on Jesus in our imperfection to live this out. Um, and it's not about living perfectly, but it's about calling on God for salvation and continually going to God and saying, I know I'm not good enough to do this in my own strength and I need you. And that humility of knowing that in our brokenness, we're going to continually look at things that we shouldn't and do things we potentially shouldn't and need Christ to continually um, renew us and, and help us grow into his image that can totally change us. And I think um, it's, uh, it can be tough when we read these passages and we see that, um, that God has severe judgment for those that turn away from him those that um, take their eyes and put them solely on things of this world that um, then pervert uh, their way of living. And then uh, it becomes it becomes so so horrible for God to see. And so it's, uh, it can be sobering when we read a passage like this of, of them going through and having to, to um, commit people to destruction, humans to destruction. And yet when we pause and we look at it and see it from a uh, from god's perspective as far as what they were doing the child sacrifice the um using human flesh and blood in their rituals um their sorcery that it became the 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 depth of their of their brokenness was too much and they were too gone in order for uh them to hear god's call for salvation god's call for repentance very sobering uh, for them, um, very sobering for us because um, uh, we're still humans and we still uh, have the same battle in our world around us that, that we uh, see going on every day. But we know who God is and we know the salvation that he offers and uh, we continue to lean on that. And so um, this will be our moment to, to pause and um, uh, bid adieu to those that need to go and those that need to take on their day. And we pray that you go in God's grace and you go in um, the strength that you need to live out God's purpose for you today. Uh, and for those of us that are going to continue, we'll be able to dive into our discussion time. So maybe I'll just pray and we'll close this portion with that. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your holy and perfect nature. Um, and we thank you that, Jesus, you draw all people, uh, you want to draw everyone to you. That There's no one that you wish to commit to destruction. There's no one that you desire to, but in your holiness and in your perfection, uh, our sin, our sin leads us to that. Our sin leads us to be in, um, in opposition to you. And so, God, we just thank you for your grace, though, and you're continually calling to you, uh, to yourself, um, that you love us so much and that you want all people to know you and to come to come to repentance and salvation. And so, God, we just thank you for that. And then we thank you for uh, our times where we can go through tough scriptures and we can read them, um, but we can, in the midst of it, see your grace and see that, uh, that you, you take your time. You are not quick to rush to judgment, right? that you 
you waited four generations on to try and see what these people would do and yet uh, they were on a path that would they would not turn from and so god we just pray that you would you would just uh, help us walk through this and help us to grow from it and we pray um this in your name jesus amen thank you for joining us today don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement visit the heartstrong shop with all kinds of merch like hoodies and t-shirts and mugs to remind you of this journey of discipleship that you're on you can log in to heartstrong.life forward slash login to access your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become heartstrong disciples together. <laughs>